Shopify Masters is powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, and anywhere in between. To get an extended 30-day trial, visit shopify.com slash masters. One of the best ways that you can grow your email list or grow your social media following is to just align with other brands that are in similar situations as you. Hey, my name is Felix. I'm the host of Shopify Masters. Each week, we learn the keys to success from e-commerce experts and entrepreneurs like you. In this episode, you'll learn how to effectively work with multiple designers at the same time, what does it mean to fail early and fail cheaply, and how to partner with a complementary and similarly sized brand. Today, I'm joined by Amina from Bartail. Bartail sells bold travel goods and accessories for those that are going places and was started in 2014 and based out of Houston and Seoul. Welcome, Amina. Hi, Felix. Hi. So yeah, tell us a little bit more about your store and what are some of the, the most popular products that you sell? What is the most popular product that you sell? Well, that's an easy answer, Felix, because we only have one product. But yeah. before we get to that... Um, so Bartel, we launched it because we think that we, as myself and my business partner, Felicia, we believe that there is a very clear gap and need for functional uh, bags for women that are also attractive. So it, it's one of those obvious things that, that we felt personally a need for and tried to fill the gap ourselves by shopping for that kind of product and didn't find it. And then the more we dug into it, the more we asked questions, the more we discussed with our friends or peers, strangers, we found that this was a common uh, issue amongst women. Uh, for example, the easiest gap for that is a, is a laptop bag. So most laptop bags are designed by men and for men. At best, you can find a men's laptop bag that's in pink or purple. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know who told all men that m- women want pink or purple bags. We don't, but uh, that's the best you could find. And so we, you know, that was the first, we have, not, you know, we have many ideas for products like that, uh, but that was the first one we chose to tackle. And so uh, we decided to, to move forward with, uh, when we decided to launch the business, we decided to just tackle one issue at the time. And so we started with really the laptop bag. And that's what our C12 bag is. So right now we're a single product business. We have multiple SKUs of that same product. It comes in different fabrics. It comes in different colorways. Um, but it's really just a women's chic functional laptop bag that, you know, fits up to a 15-inch laptop, has durable um, materials, it is is uh, convertible. You can wear it as a backpack, a tote, a messenger, a clutch. Uh, has uh, a lot of compartments for cables. Uh, you know, built-in keyring. All a lot of thoughtful details that women want, but that they want to look good. And so that's our that's that's the mission we're setting out to to accomplish is to to fill that need. And we've done it so far with one bag, and it's been a lot of fun. And we're excited to come out with new products here in 2017. Yeah, these bags look beautifully designed. I'm a big fan Thank of them. You. Yeah. So, what's your background? Do you have do you have a background in in designing products like this? So, not at all. So, uh, both Felicia and I do not have uh, a consumer product or a design background. Mm-hmm. So, this really came from you know the inside out, where we felt there was a need, and then we were the problem solvers. But part of solving that problem was finding the talent 
that could help us solve that problem. And so we decided to go the route of uh, not only hiring a fashion designer uh, by the name of Timo Weiland, who's very talented, but also hiring an industrial designer by the name of Taylor Weldon, who brought in that kind of um, more technical and uh, understanding of materials and durability and ergonomics. And so we kind of married left and right brains. And uh, we were still, you know, maybe the business minds, the market research minds, the operational minds and, and the risk takers, the entrepreneurs. But we didn't have that background. We just saw the problem and sought out to solve it. And part of finding that solution was finding the right talent. Yeah, I'm a big fan of that. I think that's important to note that you don't need to have deep, deep industry knowledge about a particular problem, about the particular solutions to get into that kind of business. If something, if it's a problem that you're passionate about solving, you don't have to have that kind of knowledge within yourself. You can go out and find it. Absolutely. Right. So talk to us about that process, though. How did you... When you when you and your co-founder sat down, her name was Felicia, you said? Yeah, her name is Felicia. Felicia. And yeah, no, it's interesting you asked about that because now, you know, now sitting where we are, uh, you know, we've been working on this for three years. We we launched last summer. It took us a year and a half to develop product. And, you know, had had we been designers ourselves and experts in the field, the product development stage would have probably been a lot shorter. Mm -hmm. Uh, And now it feels all, you know, second nature and intuitive and we've learned a lot. But um, at the time when we were starting out, you know, it was challenging, but I mean, it's absolutely doable. Anyone can solve any problem they're dedicated to solving. I'm I'm adamant about that. Um, It's just about surrounding yourselves with the right team and the right people so that you have all the expertise uh, at your fingertips. Mm -hmm. So for us, um, you know, we knew we wanted to design a bag. So we started out by uh, sourcing designers, you know, so as always, you start with your network, you ask around. At the time we were in business school at Wharton. So we had kind of a built-in network of people that we can ask around in. And the long, long story short is we went through many product design iterations with many different designers. I don't remember exactly, but three or we probably went through three or four designers before we landed on Timo. And I think that's the main point here is that it's okay to change your mind or it's okay to iterate or it's okay to try out different people and different things. I mean, that that's all part of the process. And we have to go through that in order to end up where we were. And only later in the design stage did we even understand that there was a need or recognize that there was a need for uh, a more technical designer, an industrial designer. So all that came as part of the process. So I think, I think the moral here, at least for myself, is that when you jump in, like when you're knee deep, that's when you kind of figure it out when you're in the trenches. It's mm-hmm. like, you know, we. I bet the plan, I don't even remember what our plan was, but I bet our plan and what ended up happening were two completely different things. But the bottom line is we were committed and we weren't afraid to try different things and work with different people and not afraid to say, thanks, you know, you tried your best. Uh, Here's the payment I promised you. Now we're going to try someone else. I think it's okay to do that, whether it's for web designers or product designers or any talent, it's okay to kind of switch around as long as 
everyone is, um, you know, is, is good on, on their side of the deal. Right. Obviously, mm-hmm. as long as everyone gets paid and everyone does that, but I think that's, that's part of the experience until you land on the right talent, the right team member for you. Does that make sense? It does make sense. And I, and I think what you're getting at about how it's okay to move on is a very important point because a lot of times when you are someone that doesn't have this this uh, industry knowledge, you kind of just try to latch on to people that know even a little bit more than you and you don't want to let go because you, you don't know if it's the right decision sometimes to let go or not. You, you, you kind of want to stick with what you started with. But you mentioned that you guys went through three to four different designers. So how were you, were you like running small tests with them to determine they're going to be a good fit or not? How did you know that it was time to move on to someone else? Yeah, I mean, it was very much, you know, the minimum viable product concept, right? Where, you know, we we engaged different designers at really just the conceptual stage uh, at saying, and that was, and that was the agreement was, hey, throw us your ideas. This is what we want to accomplish. Propose some ideas. We will pay you for those ideas and, you know, whatever, um, agreement we come to and if we like the concepts we'll move you know maybe one or two steps forward with you and if you don't then you know you you fulfilled your end of the deal and we did and and we're going to move on so uh i think the idea is to not when 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 you don't know enough about something you need to make sure you're not too deeply committed into it from a financial perspective Mm -hmm. right like we weren't going to go out and hire a designer for a full design all the way from concept through design development to product testing to, you know, to product development, to product testing. Like we weren't going to do the whole thing with one designer without knowing if they were the right fit or if they, if they came out with the right concept. So it comes back to this point of minimum viable product, like just test, uh, test at the, the smallest level possible for you to be able to gauge whether there's a fit. And I think that applies even, I'm sure people have similar experiences with web design. It's the same thing. I think a lot of times you don't know what you want until it's coming to life. That's when you start recognizing what works for you and what doesn't. And it's so much of the creative process is so subjective and it's so personal. It's hard to put into words. It's hard to explain what you want that you really need that chemistry between uh, entrepreneur or, you know, maybe between business mind and creative mind. And you don't know whether that chemistry is there or is not there until you really are in the trenches. Right. And so I think that there's a bigger lesson here for us that's learned is that don't get too married to, to talent, whether it's creative talent, design talent, until you know, it works, you know, that it, it gels and you don't know it gels and you don't know it works until you work together. Yeah, and I, and I think sometimes you don't know what you like until you see a bunch of things that you don't Absolutely. like. Absolutely, especially when you're, it's all new. Like you don't know what you want. I mean, we knew the problem we wanted to solve, but we didn't know in what form we would solve it. We didn't know what form it would take, you know, and it, it took many iterations, but then when we saw it, we knew it. But mm. we couldn't have described it uh, until we got there. Right. So it took a lot of, Maybe creative tension is the right word, but I mean that positively uh, to get there. Gotcha. So now you, at a certain point, you realized that you needed to bring on an industrial designer. So talk to us about that. How did you know that that was a, a next step that you needed to take to bring on another type of designer? Yeah, I mean, so from the start, 
Uh, from the start, we had this idea that we want our company to be different. We don't want this to be another fashion brand. Uh, I mean, I'm a big consumer of fashion. I love it. I, I wish we could start another fashion brand, but that's not that's not who we are. And it's not where we saw the opportunity. We really wanted this to be uh, to have, you know, equal parts style and equal, equal parts function. And there are, I think it comes with, with respecting and acknowledging that there are people that are experts at this, right? That are people that are go to, that go to school and have entire careers about not only not how things are designed aesthetically, but how they're designed functionally, right? Like, you know, car designers are good at that. Shoe designers are good at that. Um, like athletic shoe designers, like there's an entire industry around this. And we felt that it would be re- remiss of us to not tap into that, given given that we knew we wanted our brand and our products to go that way. We just sat there at some point, and I don't remember exactly where, but we're like, hey, there's this other world of designers that focuses so much on these specific qualities, and wouldn't it be great to have that kind of thought into our products? And so we just decided to tap into that. I think that just the bottom line is that there's so much talent in the world, and there's so much kind of uh, specialized and even one-off talent. And to the extent you can tap into that and bring that into your business, it just makes your business that much more special. Mm-hmm. Now, how do they work together? How does a, a fashion designer and an industrial designer, how do they work together? Like, what are they doing, I guess, together? Yeah, it's interesting, right? Because it's a lot of push and pull. It comes back to that creative tension. And I think it was, it, it was our job as a business people to bridge the gap. Now, the good news is that the aesthetics were already kind of set in stone. And then we hired the industrial designer and his, and you know, the ask of him was to not compromise the aesthetics because it's very easy to make something very functional. Mm -hmm. The compromise is that it ends up usually being very ugly, right? Yeah. And so our challenge for him, if you will, was here's a bag. This is what it's going to look like. Now make it durable, make it functional, make the laptop easy to slip in and out of, make it easy to convert from backpack to tote to messenger, make it easy to reach into your bag and grab your phone. Like all these, like we had like a whole list of demands without changing the aesthetic. And so, you know, there, there were a few compromise a few compromises that had to be made. Uh, but I think the bottom line is that we kind of wrote those rules and had we not, you know, it would have been a lot more collaborative and probably a lot harder to manage. But mm-hmm. those, that's kind of the guideline that we had in our mind was that we really, that's, that's what makes, that's what will make this product and our future products special is that we're not compromising on the aesthetics. If not, then we'd go the other way, right? If not, you just make a really functional bag and who cares what it looks like. But yeah. there's plenty of those out there. No, that's definitely a challenge that the whole function and form challenge that any kind of performance or technical apparel, whether it be bags or clothing encounters. So you mentioned that one of the key roles that you 
played or you and your co-founder played was to set the ground rules that, hey, we already have the aesthetics figured out. We now need a, an industrial, a technical designer come in and make these improvements, but don't compromise on the design, at least not much. Other than that, what, what's your role in all of this? Like when the when you put the fashion designer and industrial designer together, do you feel like you had to put input into it? Like what's your say in, in the development of the product or development of the design? Yeah, I mean, I think... I think for any entrepreneur, your number one role is to have vision, to know where you want to end up and to guide the team, the people, the work streams, your own work along the way to get there. So it, it comes back to the whole like, that's why we were so restless and so kind of unapologetic about all the time and all the iterations it took to make the product because we, we knew we would know when we were there, right? We couldn't describe it, but so it's our job as entrepreneurs and all the listeners as entrepreneurs to keep pushing until you're there. And only, you know, presumably only, you know, or hopefully, you know, best when you're there. And so that was kind of our job was to keep pushing and pulling and like steering left, steering right, ask the right questions, you know, poke and prod and and push the creative talent. So we we weren't and when I say push it, that, that doesn't mean that we, we weren't designing. Of course not. I think it's important to have the humility to know what you're good at, what you're not. Right. Like I'm not a designer at all. Neither is Felicia. But. When, when we felt like they hit a wall or they were stuck or they were going in the wrong direction, it was our job to explain why we thought it was in the wrong direction. And that didn't mean that we said, you know, put the handle here or, you know, change the width of the back, like, or, you know, change the, the type of fabric. It was more about explaining where we were going. Like, no, this doesn't work. This prototype here doesn't work because the late, you know, the woman, the Bartel woman that's going to be wearing this needs to be able to go from office to dinner. And this bag only looks like she can go to dinner. You know, what I mean, like put in words what the problem is and what the solution is. So help inspire that vision in the people in the town that you're working with. Mm-hmm. Now, can you give an example of the things that you have to do on like a daily basis to make sure that everyone is staying the course and working towards the, the correct vision? Like, how do you make sure, what do you do on a day-to-day basis to make sure that everyone's kind of in line with the, the vision? Yeah, during the the, the design process? Yeah, mean? yeah, definitely. Yeah, and so, um, first of all, I mean, it's super important to be organized and to document everything. So the first thing that we did was, you know, create a design brief uh, where we, we, Felicia and I put together a brief of, that explains everything that we were trying to accomplish by designing this product, like who the target market is, who the Bartell woman is, where is she wearing this? Why is she wearing this? What would this bag substitute? You know, um, what, what would she be carrying in this bag? Would she not be carrying this bag? How much is she wearing to pay? So all the parameters that help inspire uh, the end product and equip the designers with all that information, right? Because they are coming at it blind, right? We've had 
the benefit of, you know, maybe four, six months of thinking and research and all that. And we come to it with such clarity, but then you hire a new designer and they're coming at it blind. So the Mm -hmm. first thing you do is make sure you equip, equip them with as much background and information, uh, in a document that they can refer to as possible. And then it's about setting expectations as always and milestones, right? Um, in design, usually um, the best way to do it, I think, is like a 30, 60, 90 process. That's been my experience where at the 30% mark, you do a check-in at the 60% and then, you know, assuming everything goes well, you do another check-in at the 60% mark, another one at the 90 and then obviously at 100 um, but for us, it's also important, um, to let the creative talent kind of do its thing. Of course, you have to put milestones in a deadline or else people take forever. Mm-hmm. I would too. Uh, but I think it's a fine balance between structure and kind of letting, letting the creative juices run. Right. I mean, if you tell someone they have 24 hours to come up with a bag design, that's not going to help anyone. But if you equip them with everything they need and then you set expectations that they agree to and have their regular check-ins and make sure that they're, um, that everyone's engaged and they're in person and everyone's, and that there's no, there isn't just like 30 minutes or one hour on the calendar, but that it's, it's maybe a half a day brainstorm that it's really collaborative and that all the right crit- critiques and feedback come out in the same session. I think, I think that's how it works best. Mm-hmm. So it's it's equipping them at first and then doing periodic check-ins. Yeah, I think as an entrepreneur or as entrepreneurs, this almost seems like no one that you you work with, no one that you hire works at the same speed as you. And that's totally understandable because they don't have as much kind of skin in the game as you because it's your, you know, your baby essentially. Now, when you do these kind of check-ins and you set these expectations and you come to a check-in and it's not to the expectation is not the expectations aren't being met. What do you find is the best way to handle a situation like that? I mean, I think the best way is in terms of, do you, do you mean in terms of like the, the work product or do you mean in terms of timing? Ta- either timing or the progress that they've made or the design itself, the, the actual end product that they're working on is not what you expected. Yeah. I mean, so, Timing is a weird one. The reason I ask is because I think timing is a weird one because it's easy for someone that is not the producer of that work to set a timeline, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. like I could say, oh, please design this bag, you know, please come up with a concept in three days. But like, I've never come up with a bad concept. Like, I don't know if it takes three days or three weeks or three months, Mm -hmm. right? Like I'm just (laughs) setting up a time expectation based on my own uh, just guess of how long it takes, but I'm not the creator of that work product. So I don't know. So time is a weird thing. I think, I think that the expectations on timing need to be very sensitive and it has to be, you really need to have buy-in from the, you know, the producer, the person, the designer, the person on the other side and make sure it's reasonable. So you set these expectations collectively rather than. Yeah, it absolutely has to be collective because as I said, like, I have no idea how long it's, it really takes to come up with a great idea, right? Because that's what it is. It's them coming up with ideas. Um, so that's a weird one, right? And like if, if the designer doesn't deliver, I would prefer, I mean, think about it this way. Wouldn't you prefer they take a little longer and come up with 
kind of the killer mm-hmm. concept as opposed to just throw something together to meet a deadline. So that that's, that's kind of the trade off. Right. And so I think with timing, you have to be a little bit more lenient as, as the entrepreneur or the person in the driver's seat and, and understand like what, what the, the create, the creative talent, the designer needs in order to produce that. Now, as it relates to that quality of the work product, that's, that's a different story, right? I think, um, those expectations need to be set up front is knowing exactly what level of detail comes at which stage. And that usually I think should, should be just, uh, ironed out in the agreement. Mm, makes sense. Now, while you're going through this, it sounds like very long iteration process because you had to work through so many different designs. You had to include a different type of designer during this process. Maybe first tell us how long did it take? How long did it take from the very beginning of let's start this design, this product to having the the finished design that you're happy with to go to market? So it took us about 12 months to design this, to produce a C12 bag in terms of like from, from when it was first on our drawing boards to when we came up with a prototype that we loved. Uh, 12 months is a long time for a bag, but to contrast that, we're coming up with uh, two, hopefully two new products this year in 2017. And now that process should be a lot faster. Um, and that's because for a few reasons. One, we've already sort of developed our brand aesthetic. I think that's the hardest part when you're developing a new product and you're developing your first product is you're developing more than just a product. You're developing the brand aesthetic. Like what do you want your look and feel as a brand to be in your products. And so that's why that first one takes so much longer. The next ones are, 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 you know, inspired by the first product, if you will, you've already decided, like, are you round edges? Or are you sharp edges? Are you, you know, are you colorful? Or are you monotone? Like, though it sounds silly, but there's a lot of these big decisions that you make when you, when you come up with your first product, but that though, all those questions have been answered now. The other thing is frankly, we found our team, right? Uh, hopefully they elect to work with us again. No, I'm kidding, but I think <laughs> they will. Um, but we found our team. So assuming they're available, uh, we found the right graphic designer for us and the right industrial designer for us and the right, you know, fashion designer for us. So we don't have to, you know, have all that friction sourcing the team and figuring out how to work with them. Third point is our own learning process. We're not asking, we're asking less silly questions now. I mean, the questions are all good, but you know, we understand the design process, the product development process. We understand fabrics, materials, stitching, workmanship, all that. We understand so much more. And so we're able to catch issues and uh, improve things a lot faster now. So it's just amazing how quickly uh, you learn and, and, and how much knowledge you gain in such a short time. And I think, you know, for, for anyone listening that's developing product, just embrace the, the, the process as it relates to the first one, because that, that is so important. Your first product is kind of, will always be sort of the keystone to your brand. Um, I mean, if you think of, you know, um, Hermes and ties and Havianas and flip flops and and uh, Longchamp and their um, 
tote bags. I mean, there's a lot of brands that have many products, but they all have one cornerstone product. And mm-hmm. generally speaking, that cornerstone product product was their first one. And it's because a lot of time and effort and love and thought went into that first product and that became sort of emblematic of their brand. So mm-hmm. I would take your time on the first one regardless. Now, once you did have the design completed, what was next? Like, how did you, what was the very, what was the next step? Did you have to get it made? Did you have to start marketing the product? What was the very next step? Yeah. So we went, so, um, when I say we officially launched in 2016, now in 2015, we did, uh, a pre-order, we ran a pre-order on our website. So we didn't invest in any inventory because we didn't have the funds, but we had samples and we photographed them and we set up our website so that you could almost like a Kickstarter, uh, you could order bags and uh, we would then produce them and deliver them. So we take a small deposit and we produce the bag and deliver it to you. So that's how we did it. So that did two things, right? It helped us from a cash flow situation um, but also allowed us to test demand for our bags. Um, and we were really happy. We did about $30,000 in orders in four days. Uh, and then we shut it down because we didn't want it to get it. We didn't want it to get out of control. We wanted to make mm-hmm. sure we had a manageable order size. Um, and that was with, you know, no marketing spend, just email marketing, to our lists and on Facebook and all that stuff. So, so you're, you're building this prior to launching the business, this list, this social media presence. You were doing all this before your product was ready? Well, actually, no. I, I have to admit we did a very poor job of that. That was just our own uh, personal email mm-hmm. lists mm-hmm. and social media. Now, obviously, since then, we've learned the importance of that. And, um, you know, shortly after that really started – um, building a market an email marketing list and, you know, building up our social media. But I, I think that the pre-order format is a really good way to go. Now it doesn't work for every product, but it's a great way to go because, um, you allow customers to, to pre-order at a discount is what it is. So you have to have some incentive for the buyer to take a chance on you, new brand with no product and inventory, right? So we offered, I think, a pretty meaningful discount. I think it was a 30% discount. Uh, but in exchange, you know, you, uh, the, the customer would have to wait, I think it was 60 or 90 days for us to make the bag and deliver it to them. And it allows you, so, uh, so it allows you to, to, to gain a small customer base, allows you to manage your cash flow, and it allows you to test, right? So we had different colors. Uh, you know, and, and we were able to test, you know, where demand was the fattest, which colorways, which fabrics. So I, I highly recommend the pre-order route. So this $30,000 in pre-orders all came from friends and family, like just your own personal network? Yeah. Well, the, the funny thing is that it was from our own personal network. But then when we crunched the numbers, 60% of orders came from people we didn't know. Mm-hmm. So from email addresses that were not in our own personal list. So it was from forwards, right? It was like friends of friends or friends of friends of friends that we didn't know. So I'll say that like, don't underestimate the power of your own personal network. And I think, you know, I think when you're an entrepreneur, you get a little bit shy and you're like, I don't Mm -hmm. want to bug everyone about this, but 
not bugging anyone. I mean, if it's a good product and people want it, they'll buy it. And if they don't, they won't. <laughs> it's not a big deal. But um, but that was that was a great learning lesson then. And so I, I think that's a great way to go for anyone else is do a pre-order with your own list and you'll be surprised how many people show up. Yeah, that, that's a great approach that don't be shy, like you're saying, to to tap into your own personal network. I think a lot of times people want to chase after that sale of someone that they don't know right off the bat, but don't test the most valuable kind of assets that they have, which is your own personal network. So after this um, this pre-order, the $30,000, you guys had to then go right into manufacturing. What what did you need to use that, that those funds for? That's right. So we, I mean, so we had, so basically our supply chain is such that we need leather, canvas, uh, hardware, and a lining fabric. I'm, I'm simplifying it. It's a lot more, unfortunately, a lot more complex than that. But basically four major raw materials. We had already put some money in and gotten the longest lead item, which is uh, the hardware, because our hardware is custom. So that that allowed us to, to, to cut a little bit of the turnaround time. But then we took that $30,000 and used it to fund um, ordering the, the remaining three raw materials and fund the production. And we, and we produced our bags in India. Uh, the raw materials come from uh, Japan, Korea, and China. But then the end product uh, uh, is made by hand in India. And uh, we had already sourced, you know, prior, if you will, rewind like three, four months uh, before the pre-order, we had already spent some time in Asia identifying our factories, our suppliers in our factories. So that was all sorted. Uh, so now it was just a matter of executing. And I'll say one thing, you don't really know how manufacturing works until you manufacture something. <laughs> <laughs> so that was one of the best Doing the pre-order, which was like a low-risk kind of contained scenario where we knew, mm -hmm. you know, we knew these people, you know, we knew we gave these people a good discount. We explained the situation and we're like, you know, this is going to take 69 days, but it may take more. We're doing it for the first time. You know, there was a lot of communication. And so these customers had bought into that risk. Do you know what I mean? So in a way for us, it was a very low risk environment to try all this because every customer knew that we were a startup, knew that we were doing this for the first time. So that made us feel comfortable. Having said that, there were still a lot of glitches. I mean, we had delays. Um, one of, oh, uh, some of the hardware came in wrong, like the zippers came in backwards. I can't even explain it because it's so difficult to imagine, but they did. I mean, we had all sorts of issues, but I was so grateful that we had created this kind of, uh, you know, low-risk environment for us to, to go through this process in. Because had we gone live, you know, had our Shopify website gone live to the public and had we received $30,000 worth of orders from complete strangers, um, it would have been a much more difficult situation. Mm -hmm. So when did you receive that uh, first production run? When, when would you get that first shipment in? Uh, what time of the year, you mean? Yeah, well, what time of the year? I believe it was, now you're testing my memory, I believe it was spring, summer 2015. Mm -hmm. And then, then what was the approach from then on? Because you already you know, tapped your personal network to get those pre-orders. What was the next step to getting, you know, sense yeah, of the strangers? So the next step, 
Yeah. So the next step was uh, we delivered all the bags and then we started um, uh, amassing funds, uh, mainly our own funds and setting up a plan as, in order to produce, uh, you know, a decent batch of inventory to then go live uh, to the public. Okay. So we were just managing our budget and figuring out how much inventory we wanted to invest in as well as improve our website so that we could go live in the meantime, while we, so we kind of went dark, if you will, like we just went internal to try to prepare for a public launch. Now in the meantime, what happened is we had uh, a little bit of an issue with our bags. It's not our major issue, but the zipper pulls like kind of like the leather piece that's attached to the zipper that you use to slide to pull that makes the zipper easy to pull uh, was falling off the bags. And so, you know, all those pre-order bags had that kind of glitch in them. And so it's a long story, but we went through a very kind of testy uh, customer service phase of, of our business very early where we had to solve uh, this problem on a pretty mass scale. And I think we did a really well, a really good job, all things considered. So, you know, we, we got replacement zipper pulls. We shipped them to everyone. Uh, we pushed everyone more discounts. For some people where the, the issue was too big, we actually sent them new bags. I mean, we then were in this whole, this like customer service hole. But actually, you know what? Like at the time it was hellish. <laughs> but um, I, I always say fail early, fail cheaply. Mm -hmm. And that was that was a really big lesson learned there was we learned how to deal with crises very early when it didn't cost much, you know, because it wasn't the biggest issue in the world. Well, then it didn't, then it seemed like the biggest issue in the world, but right now it doesn't anymore. But the point is we were again in this very safe environment with, with only a few customers who knew we were startup, who knew they were taking a risk on us. So they already signed up for this, if you will. And we didn't want to let them down. Uh, and so there was a lot of thought and, and we just really figured out what works and what doesn't from a customer service element. Now, again, if we had that same product issue after having gone live to the world, we'll say, you know, after having done like a hundred or a couple hundred thousand dollars worth of orders of people all over the world that we don't know, it would have been much, much harder to manage. And so we learned how to deal with customer service crises in, in a safe bubble. And, mm. and I'm grateful for that. It, it's made us stronger. Now, can you set yourself up to, you know, fail earlier and cheaper? Of course, you'd never want to fail. But I think what you're getting at is that if you are going to figure out something is wrong, figure it out when you're not going to lose as much from figuring this thing out. So can you try to identify ways to kind of test and fail earlier than later? Well, I think it's not about, it's, it's less about putting yourself in a position to fail earlier. And it's more about always like starting small, mm -hmm. starting small. So, so taking small steps. So, um, you know, sell to your friends and family first and get feedback from them. Uh, you know, give your product to people, you know, uh, who, who will use it all the time. And, and then interview them and make sure 
the product works for them. Like just a lot of testing, like gather as much data and information from your target market in a small sample set as much as possible, but start with a small sample set and, and be, be receptive, be responsive, ask questions, listen. Um, Don't, I think a lot of people think that they go in their hole, you know, they create their product, they uh, invest in a whole bunch of inventory, then they press the go button and go live. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you can't do that because, or you can, but you're setting yourself up for, for some potentially really big failures with people that are not on your side. Mm. So I think, I think that's, that's what it means is that like test, test early and test often. Right. And test with the right people that'll be honest and that are not going to hold grudges. <laughs> now, do you, do you ever feel tempted? Cause I think what you're getting at is you want to kind of crawl before you walk, walk before you run, but do you ever feel yeah. tempted and have kind of some impatience towards this approach and just feel like just, let's just dive right in. And how do you deal with that kind of temptation to, to run maybe before you're ready? Yeah, no, I mean, it's funny you say that because there's a lot of temptation to run. And I think there's a lot there's a lot of runners out there that do really well, mm-hmm. but I think, you know, you only hear about the runners that do, do really well. You don't hear True. about the runners that, that hit a wall. Right. Um, so I think that that's a thing to remember is that we're, we're all doing this for the first time. I mean, you may not be a first time entrepreneur, but presumably you're doing this specific business for the first time. Mm-hmm. And so how could you possibly know how to do it? Right. I think like, by definition, an entrepreneur is someone that takes risk. And by definition, you're taking risk because you don't know what the outcome will be. And so if you don't know what the outcome will be, then don't put yourself in a position where you're facing the outcome without all the learnings. I, I, I just think like if you, if you sit down and you rationalize through it, there's really no reason to rush, mm-hmm. right? Um, if, if it's a great opportunity, you'll be here tomorrow. And if you're the right person to solve it, then take the time to figure out how to solve it. So it is tempting. It's tempting when you let your emotions kind of cloud, mm-hmm. cloud you over. But, um, but I think when you rationalize through it, it kind of makes sense to just test and learn and test and learn, test and learn until you, you get the confidence to do that. I mean, a lot of the great, you know, a lot of the great businesses of our time have actually done that. Right. That's a good point that that you don't. It's kind of um, a biased. Uh, I think there's data out there about why you can be more successful. You just kind of dive in and run because you don't see all the people that have crashed and burned along the way because their <laughs> stories aren't as inspiring, interesting. No one covers them. Um, no, so, yeah, and they don't want to talk about it. Either, right? <laughs> yeah, they, they're they're hiding and waiting until their next big thing comes along. So I want to talk a little bit about partnerships because that's something that you mentioned uh, to to me, to us uh, in the pre-interview about partnerships for for you and your business. Talk to us a little more about this. What kind of partnerships are you talking about? Yeah, well, I think before I go into partnership, I mean, before I talk about that more specifically, I think one thing that you learn is that, you know, people want to help each other. And for for every entrepreneur in business A, there's another entrepreneur in business a2 or a3 that is you know in a similar business that actually wants to help you out i think like we always think of competitors mm-hmm. or or that people are too busy or that everyone's just focused on their own thing but everyone 
just wants, you know, I, I think people are more willing to help each other than we initially think, I think is, is kind of the, the headline. And so, which brings me to partnerships. So one of the best ways that you can grow your email list or grow your social media following is to just align with other brands that are in similar situations as you uh, and similar situations as in they have similar target markets. Ideally, they don't have competing products. Ideally, they have uh, complementary products and that are also in a somewhat similar stage where they're willing to put in as much work as you want to. For example, I mean, one, one easy example, and you guys talk about this all the time is in your, in your podcast is, you know, the sweepstakes, right? Like, uh, email marketing speaks sweepstakes. You can get, you know, a handful of like-minded brands who stand for the right things and the same things and who, uh, have a similar target market to pull their resources together to each donate or, or, you know, put forward a product or a gift certificate or something. And then, uh, everyone emails their lists and you're offering something you're mm-hmm. saying, you know, sign up and, and you'll get one product from company A another product from company B, et cetera, et cetera. And, and everyone shares a list with each other uh, at the end. And there's, that's win, win. I mean, it's win for the customer. The customer can win something. And if they don't want to win something, they don't sign up. So no big deal there. And, uh, and uh, everyone's uh, contributing a product and then everyone gets, uh, you know, the sign up emails at the end. Those are just easy, simple things. And you'd be surprised how many brands I've emailed cold that I don't know that I just think are great brands and I love what they're doing. And I think they're, you know, their customer is our customer and our customer is their customer. And I'll email them blind and be like, Hey, do you guys want to work together? And, you know, 80% of the time people say, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes we think, other people are too busy or, or they're too removed, but everyone just wants, everyone's trying to do the same thing. <laughs> um, so, so that's, that's like partnerships are just an easy and frankly, just fun way to grow your business. You get to meet people, you get to learn about other brands, you get to learn. And, and often I'll get on, on calls with these other brands and we'll exchange notes. Like what worked for you? What didn't work for you? I'll tell you what worked for us. Like, Oh, this press article worked for me. Like I'll introduce you to the editor that wrote about us. Hopefully they'll write about you too. Like it's, it's community is so important and, and, and the more we can help each other, the better off we all are. It's not zero sum at all. Yeah. Especially in the early days, there's just so much reinventing the wheel privately, right? Everyone just figuring the same thing out by themselves. But when you can come together, you can save each other a ton of time, speed up that learning curve and, and get down to actually moving the needle rather than kind of wait, not necessarily wasting time, but time that could be spent much better elsewhere rather than trying to relearn a thing someone else could tell you that you could partner with them and have them teach you how to do it. Now, is there a limit to this approach? Do you, or do you try to work with as many partners that make sense as possible? I mean, there's always different, uh, it comes in different forms. For example, um, you know, this Valentine's day, I guess it's tomorrow. Um, but we did a campaign over the last week for Valentine's day where we partnered with a brand called Poros bags. Um, 
they create uh, functional uh, laptop bags for men. And so I reached out to them and I said, hey, I love your bags. How about for Valentine's Day, we cross promote, you know, uh, your list is presumably all men. Mine is presumably mostly women or it is mostly women. And Valentine's Day is when you buy something for the other person, generally. And and so uh, I said, how about we, you know, and it's mating season, so we should partner up. (laughs) So how about we promote your bag to our list as an idea for, for our customers to purchase for, you know, their, the men in their lives, if, if they're looking for something and vice versa. And they said, sure, of course, that sounds great. And so we did that. Uh, our, the campaign went out last week and that's, that's been great. I mean, like we acquired customers, we probably would have, you know, wouldn't have acquired this soon and, and and them too. And so it's just like, there's always something, you know, it's always different forms, but always think about, I think the key to a partnership is that it's win-win for both parties. And so always think about what you can offer them first. And sometimes I just write to people and I'm like, this is what we're doing. This is what I can do for you. Is there a way to work together? And they can then come up. They're like, Oh, we can do this or this or this back. And I, I can choose one, you know? So like, I think it's it's just you. We all have so much to offer, and I think just reaching out to people and saying that you want to work with them and you want to offer something is usually just a a small step, and it goes pretty far. Mm-hmm. And are, are you at the the kind of stage where there are a lot of people reaching out to you that are maybe not as far along? trying to work together because I think that there's this other side of it where once you have some success, there's just so many people that are coming to you for opportunities. How do you decipher which ones make the most sense for your brand versus ones that you might want to table for the moment? Yeah, no, I mean, that's, that's interesting. So yeah, we do get a lot of inbound requests um, from bloggers, from other brands. I think at the end of the day, it's really hard. You know, you can't be everything to everyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's generally just a life statement, I think, but, and it's, it's hard to say no sometimes, but I think the most important thing is to always stay, how do I say it? To always, to always be, um, true to your brand. Uh Right. And so to always be a ruthless editor of everything your brand does. Mm. And so for me, just there's one simple screen and the screen is, does me associating with this brand person, blogger, whatever on, on the other side of this email make sense? It's not about, is it bad, good, blah, blah. It's like, does this make sense? Does it gel? Like, does Bartel with this next to it make sense? Where do you want to see the, the brand? Where do you want to see your business be this time next year? What do you want, what do you want to focus on in the, in this year? So this year we have, uh, a couple of very clear focuses. Number one is uh, we want to um, develop the non-product aspect of our brand a bit more. So we want to be producers of content. Uh, We have a newsletter called The Fine Grind, which has about 40 or so thousand subscribers right now. We want to grow that to about our goal is to grow that to 100,000 by the end of the year. And what the fine grind does is it's a weekly digest of what we say is the best from our desk. And it's really, uh, you know, a digest of 
smart, cool, interesting things. So uh, it's always different every week, but it'll be, you know, something from the design world, a great book we've read, uh, a cool article in the Atlantic. It's, it's kind of a hodgepodge, but it's all smart, interesting stuff. So it's not like Cosmopolitan's like 95 ways to have sex with your work. It's not like that kind <laughs> of stuff, which I mean, there's, there's room for that kind of stuff and there's other, you know, publications do it well. So for us, it's that that's important to us and that stuff makes us happy. And I think it's, it's very central to what we believe in and what we're trying to achieve with Bartel. So that's goal number one is to really grow that. Um, goal number two is to introduce new products. As I said, uh, we're going to be bringing uh, hopefully two new products here very soon. Um, and then number three, and this is a tough one, is just to have a stronger social media presence. And we, we kind of, and I think this is, a reflection of Felicia and myself. I, I, I always joke that I'm the like most, I'm like the unsocial media. I'm just like not, I'm not into it personally. I don't really post on Facebook and don't even know what my Instagram login is. Like I'm not social media active and neither is Felicia. And unfortunately that ends up reflecting on our brand because we're not uh, social media active we end up don't putting that much effort, time and thought into uh, Bartel social media, but that needs to change this year because I can see how it's working for other companies and there's no reason we can't make it work for us, but for we're not putting the time and thought into it. Yeah. I mean, you would fool me. I'm looking at the Instagram now and, and the, the, I really love the photos that you guys have posted. Lots of great colors and oh, I can thank see you. Yeah, a nice little theme going on with it. So Maybe this podcast would get some people over to to Bartel's uh, social media accounts to get you guys uh, kicking that off. So, Bart- yeah, so Bartel.com, that's B-A-R-T-A-I-L-E.com is a website. It looks like social media is all very similar to Bartel, spelled the same way. And you said the fine grind. Is that the newsletter over at Bartel? Where can they go to sign up for that? Yeah. So the fine grinds on newsletter, uh, you know, everyone should sign up for it. It really, I mean, I'm obviously biased, but it's really special. And uh, the way you sign up for it is just on our website. If you go on our website, uh, if you scroll down, you can sign up for it. And uh, actually when the pop-up, there's a pop-up that comes up for a discount code when you get on our website, uh, that also enters you into the, the newsletter. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time, Amina. Thank you so much, Felix. I uh, really enjoyed being on here. Thanks for listening to Shopify Masters, the e-commerce marketing podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs. To start your store today, visit shopify.com masters to claim your extended 30-day free trial.